Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Indoor Air Quality Radio is broadcast from coast to coast and around the world over the internet. Today's broadcast is episode number 168, and today is Friday, May 21st, 2010. My name is Cliff Slotnecker, the Z-Man. Radio Joe Hughes will be participating remotely from a training course in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, and the intrepid environmental Ann Koalecki is at the controls. Good afternoon. Good. Today's segments include the microband trivia question, an interview with today's guest, Andrew K. Priscilli, Ph.D., uh, some comments from our technical director, Dr. Dieter Weil, and the roundup. Radio Joe and I, along with Environmental Annie and the Wingman's help, have been working on the IQRadio.com website. We add to the website and we do a blog after each show. We've also changed the invitation and news announcement from IQ Radio and the IQ Training Institute, and we hope that you like the new look and improved functionality. Now we'd like to thank our sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at John Don, J-O-N-D-O-N dot com. And our new marquee sponsor, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management, who provide management best practices and in-depth cleaning solutions to help keep readers ahead of the curve and successful in their daily operations. Visit them at www.cleanfacts.com and www.cmmonline.com for more information on these invaluable resources and to subscribe. Be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. To contact the show by phone, dial 724-444-7444 and enter our show ID, which is 1547. Press 1 and join the show. You can download the show by going to our website, www.iqradio.com, and following the link that says go to the show. And you can easily get the show from iTunes. You can obtain your IICRC continuing education credits, your ACAC renewal credits, and now ABIH credits by emailing Radio Joe and requesting the quiz. Radio Joe's email is joe.use at iaqtraining.com. To make suggestions, 
special requests, or ask technical questions, you can either email Radio Joe or the Z-Man. My email is cliffzlotnick at unsmoked.com. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at ieqtraining.com. Congratulations to Andrew Krasowski for answering last week's Microband two-part trivia question, correctly identifying Dunfermline, Scotland as the city where the first Carnegie Library was built and Braddock, Pennsylvania as the home to the first Carnegie Library built in the United States. Now for the Microband trivia question for Friday, May 21, 2010. In 1824, the U.S. Congress created an agency within the Treasury Department to establish and promote the consistent use of uniform weights and measures. Name that agency. Let's talk a little bit about our guest. Andrew K. Priscilli, Ph.D., works on indoor air quality and ventilation in commercial and residential buildings. His work includes the development and application of measurement techniques to evaluate airflow and air quality characteristics in a variety of building types, including large mechanically ventilated buildings and single-family dwellings. The evaluation procedures include tracer gas techniques for measuring air change rates and air distribution effectiveness, contaminant concentrations, measurements, and envelope tightness. He's also involved with the development and application of multi-zone airflow and contaminant dispersal models. Dr. Priscilli is a past vice president of the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, known as ASHRAE, and is past chair of ASHRAE SSPC 62.1, responsible for the revision of the ASHRAE Ventilation Standard 62. He is a past chair of the ASTM subcommittee E6.41 on air leakage and ventilation performance and is a member of subcommittee D22.05 on indoor air quality. Dr. Priscilli's first two years at the National Bureau of Standards were as a National Research Council postdoctoral research associate working on air infiltration in homes and large buildings. He received the Department of Commerce Bronze Medal in December of 1990. I'm sorry, 1989, and was named Young Engineer of the Year by the D.C. Council of Engineering. How about some intro music for Dr. Persilli? It's time to think about it. Clean air, give me, give me clean air. Can't live without it. Clean air, give me, give me clean air. Before we do too much harm. It's time to sound an alarm. We can't be waiting too long. Polluting air is so wrong, 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 wrong. Oh, give me clean air. It's what I need air. I need some clean air. I can't breathe. Oh, won't you give me, give me clean air. It's what I need air. I need some clean air. I can't breathe. Okay, Joe, uh, let's turn it over to you. Hello, Cliff. Hi. Good day, Dr. Persley. Welcome to IAQ Radio. Thanks for joining us. Um, I, I'm just curious about your position at, at NIST. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, 
what NIST does, and then a little bit about your position? Sure, sure. I'd be happy to, and, and thanks for uh, inviting me to join you today. I, I look forward to the discussion. Um, NIST, or the National Institute of Standards and Technology, is part of the U.S. Department of Commerce and has an overall mission to do technical research and technical support to um, kind of further the advancement of, of, of U.S. industry, to promote the... Uh, you know, health and, and security of, you know, of the nation overall to provide um, support to other agencies and in, in terms of their technical questions. Um, we talk about uh, kind of being the, providing the technical infrastructure for measurement so that if uh, some industry is moving into a new area, but they, you know, some, some think of semiconductors where they have to measure you know, the quality of these circuits at much smaller length scales than they've ever had to before, you know, NIST will hopefully anticipate that and do the research so that they can, you know, move forward in their uh, technology development with a reliable um, measurement technique. And, you know, and yes, that extends to uh, building performance issues that we're going to talk about today. My, my job here, I work in the building and fire research laboratory, which is one of of the major laboratories at NIST where research is done on a range of building performance and safety issues. And if you work your way down the org chart, you'll find me leading the indoor air quality and ventilation group. Cliff? I just wondered, Dr. Priscilli, whether anyone at NIST uh, knows what time it is. Well, um, I do, because I'm looking at the uh, uh, time.gov website. I was checking my watch, which is now about seven seconds slow. But, uh, you know, NIST has a, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of folks, you know, think about NIST in terms of traditional weights and measures, um, activities that still constitute an important part of our work, but it's kind of the historical you know, and there you're talking about the meter stick and the kilogram and all these other measures that need to get standardized. And part of that is measuring time. And, you know, we can, uh, you know, we work with uh, the Naval Observatory and others to kind of keep track of, you know, the absolute time and then also help people measure, you know, very small time scales for a variety of, of uh Technical issues that, frankly, I don't understand that well. Okay. But if you go to time.gov, you will be able to set your watch and be more accurate than mine. Thanks. Joe? You know, I'm looking back through a long list of um, research projects and, and papers that you've done over the years, going back into the late 70s even, and then the early 80s. And, and we've been talking a lot lately with guests about um, the current uh, push to you know weatherize homes and and to save money and save energy uh, more so than money even and maybe help the planet a little bit with uh, carbon dioxide emissions etc by weatherizing these homes. I'm just curious, you know, how much is what kind of mistake did we make early on with respect to this weatherization and how do we avoid repeating some of these mistakes? 
Okay, that's, that's a good question and very timely. Um, I first kind of got into this field in the late 70s, you know, during the first so-called energy crisis, and I was involved with a, a research group at, at Princeton that was doing some of the first work on retrofitting homes and came up with the concept of house doctors and worked with probably the first blower door that was in this country about 30 years ago. And, um, you know, there were, you know, there was a lot of good reasons to save energy back then and probably even more so now. You know, so, you know some of the mistakes, I, I guess, I put them into two, you know, two categories. You know, one is kind of, you know, um, jumping into measures before thinking them through. You know, we, we've all heard about folks who, well, we want to save energy, we're going to nail up some plywood over the outdoor air intake, or we're going to, you know, tighten up the building without regards to what it might do to indoor pollutant levels. And, you know, buildings are, are complicated um, structures. Even the simplest house can get, you know, um, can be fairly complicated in terms of airflow and pollutant movement. So, you know, before you do something, you need to understand what it's, you know, what it's going to do for you. And while energy is important, there's a lot of other reasons, a lot of other important performance issues, um, indoor air quality being one of them. And if you run down the energy savings path without thinking about indoor air quality, you may get burned. Or if you run down and do things in the path of energy and do things that compromise or lead to moisture problems, and I mean, your building may uh, may fall down, or, or you may have some serious material issues. You know, so so that that's one one issue is kind of acting in with good intent to save energy without thinking it through, and then the other is you know acting to save energy without checking on whether you really accomplished it or not. You know, you can buy and install lots of of caulk and insulation, but if it's not putting installed properly in the right place, you know, you're not necessarily going to get the performance that you expect. So, you know, just doing it is not enough. You got to do it right. And everybody collectively needs to, you know, kind of establish the efficacy of, of these various approaches. And, you know, that's true today as well. We're smarter. Um, you know, we have more electronics and computers to help us but uh, hopefully that won't just result in us making mistakes more quickly, right? <laughs> well, it, exactly. If I've got limited resources, and, um, you know, most people do, I would, I'm curious, should I look at um, air tightening first or insulation first, or would it be dependent on my building or my home? Yeah, that's, you know, I think the answer is going to be building-specific. Um, you know, and I think it would depend on the age of the building and the age of the heating and cooling system. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all. You know, I think there's a list of options, and air tightening is one of them, and, you know, insulation level is another. You know, the heating and cooling system I mentioned, the water heating system, you know, kind of look where the energy is going and where it's coming from, and, you know, the, uh, I guess an educated homeowner can do it, but it does require some familiarity with the technology and the issues to make sound decisions. So, 
you know, fortunately now there's a lot of well-trained po- folks out there doing, you know, weatherization inspections and making these recommendations based on pretty sound information. So there, there again, there's really no one-size-fits-all, um, but it, I think the important thing is it needs to be based on that, on the specific building and and its, it's uh, specific construction and systems and, and so on. And, and you emphasize measurement. Are we, uh, I'm just going to follow up a little on that, um, the way the programs are currently set up, and I know they vary, you know, state to state and region to region around the country. Um, I think in general we're doing measurement before the, um, you know, before any any caulking or insulation is added. Uh, have you noticed that, um, are you aware, are we, doing a better job of making sure people go back afterwards and verify whether or not what they've done has worked? You know, I really am not that familiar with, with how the programs are handling verification these days. I, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with some efforts where there's like a blower door test before and after, and that's pretty quantitative, or maybe a furnace efficiency test before and after it's tuned up. You know, it's harder to measure the R value of a wall reliably, but, you know, if a qualified person is putting in the insulation, you know, that's probably going to be effective. But, you know, ultimately, it probably would be better for everyone if there was some kind of a, you know, kind of an NPG equivalent for a house, which, you know, could be based on utility bills or something that, you know, could show everybody, you know, yes, this, this has worked and we've had an impact, but, you know, that takes time. You kind of have to go through a heating or cooling system, system, season, I'm sorry. And, I, you know, I've heard some people talking about some quicker, more clever techniques to kind of get a, a uh, you know, a reliable indication of, you know, how the energy consumption has been impacted you know, without having to wait a whole year, but I think those are still kind of in the works. So if you but, had, uh, you know, a lot of money is going to get spent to weatherize homes, and, you know, everybody wants it to be effective. It sounds like if you had your, you know, if you could wave a magic wand and make sure we did this right, you would make sure we did go back at the end of the year and make sure that we, you know, actually made a positive impact. Yeah, I mean, and again, I don't know what kind of verification programs are in place. I'm going to, you know, suspect there's, you know, people are thinking about that and, and uh, you know, are going to address that issue because, you know, nobody wants to spend all this money, you know, whether it's a government program or a private homeowner without some, you know, some uh, good sense that it's going to have a, a positive impact because we know we can you know, we know we can save energy in buildings, so, you know, let's, let's do it. And that has been your experience. It's a little checky. You have been able to um, verify that by doing these things and and doing them in the right, you know, method, uh, following the right methods, following the right uh, techniques, we have been able to verify we can, we can save quite a bit of energy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even going, you know, back... You know, 30 years again when I first started, uh, you know, learning about these things, it was all a lot of uh, energy was saved, and you know, sometimes it took some time to, you know, 
because some sometimes the the thermal defects in an existing home can be you know a bit obscure and hard to find. But you know, knowledgeable per, knowledgeable person with the right tools can't find them. I remember some townhouses. This is in the 70s. I'm going to guess they were built in the 60s or 70s. You know, they made efforts and reduced the energy consumption by three quarters. You know, which is, uh, you know, no reason. You know, that can be done. Now, the whole issue then becomes: Is it cost effective? You know, how much time and how much money does it take? But uh, we know energy is a lot more expensive now than it was back then. So, you know, it makes sense. You know, from an economic point of view. You know exactly which measures kind of are no-brainers, which ones, you know, need a little bit more consideration, which ones may be, you know, more expensive that can be justified currently. You know, that, that's a uh, tougher question. Got a text question, Cliff. Do you want to take that or do you want me to take it? No, I, I can I can pose it. Uh, doctor, um, could you describe your experience with the EPA base and the ASHRAE studies regarding ventilation and areas for future research. Sure. So you're referring to the uh, EPA base study? I believe that's what the text questions are about. Yes, it's from a, a listener. Yeah. I mean, this goes back, gosh, it's probably well, it was close to, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Um, you know, EPA realized that most of the buildings that were being studied for indoor air quality issues were problem buildings, you know, where something was going wrong and people were called in to try to figure it out and fix it. And that we, you know, didn't really have a good idea of what a non-problem building looked like. So you go to a building and people were complaining about headaches. Half the people had a headache last week. Well, was that high or low or in between, so they constructed this base study, which was, which was really, uh, you know, very important for the field and is worth looking at. Um, to go out to some buildings, kind of randomly selected, you know, buildings that hadn't been written up in the paper because of lawsuits or IAQ problems, and just they went in for roughly a week in each building and measured a bunch of indoor air pollutants characterized the building, did some ventilation assessments, and then did occupant questionnaires so they could, you know, record, develop this fairly, fairly rich data set of, of all that information in so-called non-problem buildings. And we were involved, um, at NIST, we were involved in developing the protocols that were used to do the ventilation assessments of the buildings, you know, how things would be measured and and analyzed and what information would be collected. And then subsequently we evaluated the uh, ventilation data that was collected in those buildings. And all this information is available, you know, the whole protocol for these tests and all the data are available on the EPA website for people who might be interested. I think I only partially answered your question, so I'll let you follow up if you Yeah, let me do that. Um, we will also, by the way, for uh, any listeners out there, we'll put a link up to that information on the EPA website at the uh, tomorrow after uh, I get back into the office. But um, I guess the specific um, question was 
you know, first of all, to give us a good background on what the base study was, and that helps quite a bit. But also, they were, I guess, asking, you know, what areas for future research would you, um, I guess, would you propose, or are you already working on future research with respect to ventilation, and, and has the, you know, have your previous um, thoughts on the issue with respect to ventilation been confirmed? Well, you know, in terms of future research, there's a whole, you know, whole slew of issues. If I, and there's been some pretty good kind of research planning efforts that have been put together by um, EPA and the U.S. Green Building Council and NIST as well and, and others, and I could send you uh, information on those. But, uh, you know, rather than me pulling those out and reading them, um, you know, in terms of ventilation research, you know, I think there, you know, one area um, that we need is, is, is that it's really hard to go into a building and get a good measure of the ventilation rates, you know, what kind of, uh, you know, how much outdoor air is being brought into the building. It, it's really, you know, fairly tough to do that reliably. And the more complex the building, the more complex the system, the tougher it is. And if there was a way, you know, to, you know, go into a building without, you know, too much technology and, you know, um, too much time and too much expense and get go in there and get a, you know, a, a better number than we're getting today, you know, that'd be great. And, it's, and it, whether it's a home or a, uh, you know, commercial building, you know, that's something that's really needed. So we need to develop some more accessible ventilation measurement techniques. I think that, that's one area. Another that comes to mind is as we, you know, try to both save energy in buildings and maintain, if not improve, the indoor air quality, there's all sorts of good ideas being generated and, and proposed to do ventilation a bit differently. And some of them, I think, are more well-established than others. But we need to take a hard look at some of these different ventilation technologies and, you know, how well do they perform, how should they be designed for a specific building, you know, how should they be maintained so that, you know, the good performance in terms of energy and IAQ continues, you know, for, for years through the, throughout the building life. So... I would say ventilation measurement and then innovative ventilation technologies are two research areas that come to mind. And I'm sure if, if I thought more or as we talk more, I think others would, uh, you know, come up as well. I noticed in your in your papers that uh, there was one on the use of carbon dioxide as a, I guess, as a surrogate for determining whether or not ventilation was effective within either residential or commercial buildings, I guess more so commercial. And, and with how complex they are, I, I understand a lot of our listeners who do indoor air quality investigations will probably use that. Can you give them some tips on how not, what mistakes not to make maybe when using carbon dioxide? As right. Sure, sure. I mean, carbon dioxide, measuring indoor levels of carbon dioxide to assess ventilation and IEQ, you know, is, 
is pretty widely applied and has been for a lot of years, and it has a lot of advantages because CO2 is, you know, among all the pollutants that you might have to measure, you know, is relatively easy to measure. You know, the technology is, you know, not particularly expensive or noisy or heavy or complex. And, you know, you have a built-in um, injection system for carbon dioxide in a building, namely the occupants. Um, you know, that said, you know, when you use carbon dioxide in this way, you're basically using it as a tracer gas. And, you know, a tracer gas traditionally is, is a gas that is injected into the building in some controlled fashion, and then you measure the concentration over time, and then you back out parameters of interest, like ventilation rates. And when you use a tracer gas, you know, there's certain things you got to do, you know, to get useful information out of it. And just because the tracer gas is carbon dioxide and it's free and it's already there, you still got to follow the rules. So, um, you know, the most common application of CO2 is to measure the rate and then try to calculate the outdoor air per person. And for that to work, you know, the, the uh, you know, there's a few assumptions they include but aren't limited to that, that the outdoor ventilation rate is constant, that the occupancy is constant, and that the, the indoor CO2 is built up to a steady state level. And those conditions may or may not exist. There's um, So, you know, without going into a lot of technical detail, you know, carbon dioxide can be very useful, but whoever's doing it needs to understand you know, what, you know, what are the assumptions behind the technique, you know, and what are the, uh, you know, what do they have to check for, you know, to make sure they're going to get a reliable value. There's actually an ASTM standard that describes kind of how to use carbon dioxide to evaluate ventilation and indoor air quality, and that standard is D6245. Um there's, I also have a couple of papers that describe this, and I could send those to you. And since I wrote them as a public employee, they're in the public domain, so, you know, they can be distributed and, you know, they don't have the, perhaps the authority of an ASTM standard, but the technical information is um, still um, pretty, hopefully pretty helpful. You know, I think a kind of a practical concern with CO2 measurements that I, you know, I'm going to assume a lot of your listeners probably realize is, you know, these devices, while, you know, they can be quite good and reliable, they do need to get calibrated. And so that's one key issue is calibration. Another is, you know, the carbon dioxide levels in a building are on the order of a thousand, the air you breathe out of your mouth is on the order of like 30,000, so you need to make sure that the measurements are not influenced by you or other nearby people. And then the third key is that these indoor levels are always with reference to the outdoor level. And outdoor CO2 levels can vary quite a bit over time in geographic locations. They can get pretty high, for example, in an urban area in the summer when there's temperature inversion. So you really need to check the outdoor level as well. And that actually can be a nice way to check out your device because if you measure it outside and you're 
getting a thousand ppm or something very high or very low, that's a quick indication that something funny is going on with the device. Okay, well, I appreciate that. Guest three, um, I don't know if I anticipated your question or if um, you were following up, but if we didn't answer your question, just uh, send us another text if you would. We're coming up on halftime. I know the Z-Man. We've got to uh, we've got to sell a little soap and thank our sponsors, and we'll bring Dr. Wow in. But I also want to let listeners know we haven't uh, neglected the indoor air quality guide, best practices for design, construction, and commissioning. Dr. Persley was um, steering committee chair on that one, and we're going to talk a little bit about that after halftime. So if you can hang in there with us for just a moment, we'll be right back. Okay. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor, software technology, and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Pro Restore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at Legends-Enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dries Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dries is first in drying solutions. Learn about them at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Dieter, any comment on the first half of the show? Yeah, hi there. Good day. Uh, this is Dietrich, Dietrich Wire. And a couple of uh, interesting topics that uh, were touched upon. And uh, one of the things that I'm personally still interested in is, is the fire laboratory. I worked years ago for the Bayer Chemical Corporation, and we produced polyurethanes for insulation in houses. And there's such a thing as flame spread and what happens when the material... Yeah, what what is given off um, uh, when you burn those materials, when the house is burning down? Well, if you have a silk sweater in there, <laughs> you better get out of there when the house is burning, I tell you. And uh, maybe I ask a question, uh, what kind of tests? Are we doing toxicological tests with building materials? The ones that I did, is uh, this is now 20 years ago, so things have changed. Um, the energy crisis. Uh, at one time, I was right. I said I, I I still haven't figured out who was lying to us, but somebody had a big lie there. And in fact, right at the energy crisis, I decided to buy a sports car that gets about 12 miles to a gallon. I said this is all garbage. Somebody is screwing us, and they certainly did. 
And uh, like I said, I still don't know what, who, who started the energy crisis. There obviously was never, ever an energy crisis. At the time, what, China used two gallons a day. Now they use 20 million or something. And everybody seems to be happy uh, down there. However, I mean, I'm, an, I'm all in favor of uh, uh, building an, an, an energy-efficient house. In fact, I'm working kind of on mine. I put a better furnace in, and um, I don't want to rip down the walls and put better insulation in there. But um, uh, I, I certainly think with the increase of energy prices, be it gas or electric, I got love letters from both of them, and they tell me that my bill is going to go up another 30%. Not 3%, not 10%, but 30%. So I'm looking forward to that. And I don't know what a lot of other people are doing. I you know, I kind of can afford it, but I don't want to do it. But uh, I think we, we and, and it, it, it was mentioned, uh, th there are no easy answers. And I have been running around in, in buildings and trying to figure out where the fresh air came in. <clears throat> By and large, I can't find any drawings or somebody has modified something that was never, ever recorded. And I stand in the middle and I said, guys, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. You know, I don't know where that is coming from. So I think, I think in that respect, we really have to take a couple of steps back. It's not difficult, but it's got to be done, and somebody has to be told to do it right. And I shut up over here. Peter, that's a great segue, and if we can get uh, Dr. Persley back on the line, I, maybe uh, we could follow up. I don't know if you were able to hear Dr. Wild's comments or not, uh, but I know Cliff was also interested in the fire side of things, but I also realized you don't do a great deal with that. Um, can you can you give us a little bit of uh, background on what the group does there at NIST uh, NIST for with respect to fire? Sure, you know, we'll be brief because I'm not, you know, involved in it. So I, I try to pay attention because it's it is interesting stuff. Um, you know, they they have done, you know, kind of split into two areas. One, the more fundamental research, which is where they've looked at flame spread and the you know byproducts of combustion and fire suppressant technologies, and you know, I don't know, kind of the split you know, in terms of past work and current work in the area of toxicity, for instance, but I know that's something they looked at. You know, I know they've looked at the performance of, you know, flame retardants and, you know, uh, what that does for flame spread and then what that might do for the, you know, what's released when a, when a fire occurs. And so there's, you know, that side, you know, where they're looking at, the, you know, kind of the science behind it. And then there's a whole other group, um, area of activity, which is kind of more applications, and it's, you know, a uh, actual building evacuation strategies, how long does it take to get the people out, what's the best way to do it, you know, I know they've recently they've been looking at using elevators, you know, to evacuate folks, and while that's been a no-no for a lot of years, you know, when you talk about a big building and you have folks who are, you know, in wheelchairs and, and other, you know, have other constraints on their ability to move, you know, elevators, you know, may make a lot of sense, uh, you know, if they're, you know, used properly and, 
been designed for it, and then they look at sprinkler systems and smoke detectors again, kind of in, in, in equipment and technology for first responders. So that's kind of on the practical side. Um, well, conspiracy. I love conspiracy theories too. You know, I'm not uh, haven't really followed the energy crisis ones. I, I kind of like to go out, you know, for the more uh, more exotic conspiracy theories. But I guess that'll be another. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out, yeah, to be, uh, or maybe, you know, a different station, but, uh, you know, the comment on not being able to figure out where the outdoor air is coming in is, is a real, is really, you know, true, unfortunately. And then one, one interesting finding in the base study, you know, they went to this hundred, these hundred office buildings and they were going to look at the amount of outdoor air being brought in. So first they wanted to see what the design level was, you know, how much was the building designed to bring in. And only in about half of the buildings could they even track down a design outdoor air intake rate, which, you know, was, some people thought that number was high and others were amazed how low it is. But, you know, how are you going to ensure that a building is being operated correctly when you don't even have, you know, design value to which it's supposed to be operated? So it's... Uh, Great follow-up and it's pretty telling reality. It's a great lead into um, what I think was a, a, a big part of the reason for the development of the indoor air quality guide here um, that you were such a big part of. I mean, was was part of the reasoning behind? Well, maybe you could just tell us what. How did this come about? We've got the American Society of Heating, Refrigerating, and Air Conditioning Engineers, ASHRAE, the American Institute of Architects, the Building Owners and Managers Association, the Sheet Metal Air Conditioning Contractors, the U.S. EPA, and the U.S. Green Building Council, all working together on a best practices for design, construction, and commissioning book is, is part of the reason for developing that to, you know, the fact that we did fine. We don't know where the outdoor is coming in from and some other things. <laughs> I think that you know that's that's one of the re- one of the you know many problems or concerns we were trying to address with this document. But in, in thinking you know kind of thinking back on this document, this indoor air quality guide that was published earlier this year for the first time, you know it was a a multi year effort, and I had to think a little bit. You know, and I wanted to start this, and, and I think there's really two fundamental reasons. The first is, you know, prior to this document, there was, you know, lots of good information on indoor air quality in buildings, you know, that had been developed over the years, you know, various documents, research papers, guidelines, all sorts of things, but there wasn't really a comprehensive collection of this information, and there certainly wasn't a good collection targeted towards the people who designed and, and built the buildings. You know, we can write papers and we can talk to each other as IAQ experts and consultants and, and whatever about how to do it right, but we've, to really have an impact, you've got to talk and you've got to communicate to the designers and ultimately to the building owners or the developers, the people who you know, write the checks and tell the designers, this is what I want in my building. So one goal was to put together you know, the practical information to the people who need it you know, so you're going to have an impact. The, and that, the other reason, the second reason is, 
you know, the good ashtray and, and had spent a lot of time on Standard 62, the indoor air quality standard, um, first published in the early 70s, and had, you know, been developing that over the years, but the recent versions, the ones kind of starting in the late 90s, were written in a way, were written so that they would get adopted by the building codes. Because again, if you want to have an impact, you get it into the building code, because then it, when the building code is adopted by a local jurisdiction, it, is, it has the force of law. Well, if you're going to write a building code, you're kind of constrained to write in terms of minimum requirements, and it's got to be you know, in mandatory language and enforceable. And what that means is, you know, it has a lot of power, but if you're writing it in the form of a building code, you can't put in a lot of things. You can't put in examples. You can't put in explanatory material. You can't put in some good ideas that aren't quite right for requirements. So all this good information, you know, couldn't be put in the 62.1. And so Ashray early on identified, you know, that there was a need to, for another document, some kind of a guidance document that could contain all this other good stuff that didn't belong in the standard. And they uh, um, developed a relationship with the Environmental Protection Agency, who had a long history of developing some pretty solid guidance on IAQ, and that relationship led to the development of this document. That's that's a update that really helps me. Uh, I appreciate that explanation. Um, you know, because I, I've been reading through this document. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to the CD yet, but. That's probably where a lot more of the detail is, but um, it helps me understand better why the document's written the way it is, and there are a lot of great little case studies in here and things that you wouldn't find in a, in a minimum standard. So that was a really helpful explanation. As a part of this document, and we've got a couple text questions that we'll get to here in a minute, but before we go there, as a part of this document, the, there seems to be quite a bit of emphasis on commissioning. Um, and I just want you to, if you would, tell us what you know commissioning is per your definition of commissioning, and also you know how often is proper commissioning actually done on new buildings in in your experience? That's a, that's a good question, an important question, and and commissioning, and I'll just kind of give a plain English definition. You know, there's all sorts of documents that have more kind of precise definitions that that, uh, you know, are, are important. But in terms of, you know, what, what does commissioning mean to me? It means, you know, making sure that the building and the systems in the building, are, you know, were installed and operate as intended. You know, um, you can design a great building and you can even, you know, buy all the equipment and have all the great materials and, and so on. But, you know, things happen, you know. You know, just you know, in a big enough building or any building, things don't always get put in right. And commissioning is the process where you make sure that the building was constructed and the equipment installed to operate as intended. That's kind of, the, you know, the quick explanation. And that has to do with, you know, kind of mundane things like taking the guards off of, you know, of fans so that they, you know, can operate to make sure the pumps are going in the right direction you know, to making sure that the flashing around the windows was put in right, 
And ideally, it's a lifelong process. It begins at the very earliest stages of design so that everybody knows what's going to be checked and how it's going to be checked and and uh, kind of build it into the process so that it's not rushed and it continues through construction. And after occupancy, some people talk about recommissioning the building you know, into its life you know, to make sure that things are still operating as intended. You know, how often is it done properly? I'm not sure anybody knows. It's certainly done more than it used to be, and that's a good thing. And I'm sure there are some commissioning efforts that occur that some folks wouldn't characterize as proper. But um, I'm not an expert on lead, but I'm pretty sure that lead either requires a commissioning effort or at least will provides for some extra points if a commissioning effort is, is part of a building project. And, you know, that's, that's helping, you know, getting it out on the street for sure and, and presumably improving practice as well. But it's, it's really important. I appreciate that answer. That was that was very uh, much what I was hoping you would say. I, I kind of figured you would, uh, because I think a lot of people, when they think of commissioning, they, they think more of just you know testing, adjusting, and balancing, and not necessarily all the other aspects of commissioning that you mentioned uh, in your answer. So we appreciate that, and, and and kind of leading in from you know testing, adjusting, and balancing, and also you know following up on your interest in ventilation. Can you explain for us um, how buildings should be pressurized? And, you know, and should they be positively pressurized, negatively pressurized, neutral, or is it going to vary? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is going to be situation specific to a degree. You know, depending on the climate, you know, depending on what kind of building it is. Um, you know, I think generally when you're when folks talk about commercial buildings and office buildings um, and some institutional buildings, they tend to think about positive pressurization so that you know you have less infiltration into the building. But um, you know, you have to be a little careful and really, you know, it's a, it's a potentially complex subject. And you know, we, we've all heard lots of horror stories, particularly in humid climates, where a building becomes depressurized due to some sort of a equipment problem or, or air distribution problem, and then you get the issue of hot humid air being drawn into the building, condensing it on the first cold surface it sees, and, you know, liquid water and mold and all sorts of uh, problems resulting. So we know... You know, that buildings in hot human climates, you know, do need to be pressurized. But, you know, just saying, you know, a building's going to be pressurized, I mean, it's easy to say, but in reality it can get pretty complicated because it could be overall it's at a positive pressure, but you could have local parts of the building that are negatively pressurized because of a, you know, a, an issue with a particular exhaust fan that serves part of the building. So you you kind of look at the whole. You have to look at the building as a whole, and you have to look at it locally. And you know, but when you get to cold climates, you know, too much pressurization can be a problem. If you, if you go back to the '70s and you look at there's some great stories out of Canada where the buildings, some buildings were leaky and positively pressurized. So then you have the humidity from inside getting pushed out, it's the cold part of the facade and freezes. 
and Isaac Scrans, and there's all sorts of dramatic horror stories about, you know, concrete panels on the outside of buildings getting forced off the building from this freezing ice and, you know, landing in the street. So it's uh, it's serious business, but, it, you know, it can be done, you know, correctly. It's more straightforward if you're in a real hot, consistently hot and humid climate or consistently cold climate, you know, but, but there aren't a lot of those, a lot of back and forth um, climates that spend time in both realms. So, you, you know, you need to give it some thought and there is some good guidance on that. And that's something that's discussed in the uh, um, IAQ guide. And I feel like I'm going on a little bit, but I'll just mention that, you know, for some particular spaces, they require special attention, like, uh, you know, if you have an indoor swimming pool, you want that to be negatively pressurized relative to the rest of the building so that it, the moisture and the treatment chemicals don't get into the rest of the building. So there's also kind of local or space-specific issues that you need to deal with in some buildings. You know, I, I, we talk a lot about positive and negative pressurization, but I guess if you could maybe help explain for, um, and I know it could, it could take a while, so I don't. I'm not sure if you can do it quickly or not. But uh, how do we, you know, how do we do that? How do you, how do you keep a building in a hot, humid climate pressurized positively so that you know it's not, um, and it's you know consistently pressurized positively, not just during certain times of the day or during certain seasons or whatever the case may be. What's what are some of the best techniques, or is there one maybe you could talk to us about? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a range of issues that need to be looked at, and, and kind of I'm just going to start with, you know, the envelope construction. You know, you, you, even if you, you know, do a very conscientious design to, to positively pressurize the building, you know, there will be periods of time where your system may not, you know, due to weather conditions or something, may not kind of do, you know, perform quite as well as you'd like it to. So you have to design the envelope so it can tolerate some wetting. You know, it has a way for the liquid water to drain out and for wet surfaces to dry out. So, I, you know, I start with an envelope that, that can tolerate, you know, some of the moisture that invariably, you know, occurs. And then, you know, then you'll just, at a gross level, you look at how much air is coming into the building through the ventilation system and how much is leaving you know, through the exhaust system, and don't forget the local, you know, the toilet exhaust. And you just kind of do a net airflow balance. And if you want it to be positive, you better be bringing in more than you're taking out. And think about that, not just at design conditions, but at part load conditions and, you know, other conditions of operation that your system is, or your systems, you know, on a whole building scale are going to have more air coming in than leaving. And then, you know, you probably go down, you know, to local scales and think about, you know, duct leakage and, you know, a good example that people have talked about quite a bit are, are using um, plenums as exhaust ducts, you know, and as soon as you do that, you have a negatively pressurized space, even though the whole building may be positive on average. And so you need to think about, am I creating negative pressure zones that I, without thinking about it, because of the way I'm distributing the air or pulling out the exhaust air, so you need to think about those local effects. 
And, you know, you can get into some sophisticated controls that are able to monitor the pressure difference and adjust the fan speeds or damper positions to maintain the positive pressure, but that can get, you know, it can get complicated um, and probably isn't always, you know, isn't needed in all buildings. It's a whole other layer of complexity in terms of commissioning and maintenance and operations. So, you know, maybe everybody's better off, you know, to kind of start with the fundamentals and in situations where it's really critical, maybe you do need to get into real-time control, but that might not be where you want to start. I think that's a great uh, it really helps me, um, you know, start with the envelope and, and make sure that it's it's tight, but also that it can dry out and, and maybe not worry so much about the pressurizations. I guess um, sometimes we're led to uh, led to do. Um, now, that you know, you talked about um, this pressurization issue, and it kind of ties into a question that's been texted in from uh, uh, one of our listeners here. And they're asking if we should do more uh, direct measurement to determine ventilation rate. And I guess maybe I could add to that. I, I assume they're, they're talking about direct measurement of um, uh, of the out, outdoor air coming into the building through, you know, measuring the amount of outdoor air as opposed to using a carbon dioxide. But also, if you could maybe kind of compare uh, that and also going to the level of using a tracer gas. Right, right. And I mean, I think the, the issue here is real-time control of outdoor air and real-time measurement to verify that you're bringing in the required amount all the time. And that's, you know, that may be the Cadillac approach. And in some situations, it's probably called for, um, you know, but uh, it is an extra level of sophistication and cost and maybe even complexity that you, you know, um, may not need, you know, for a system, a simple system, a simple constant volume system that's well-maintained, you probably don't need to do it, um, you know, but if you, you know, really want to know, you know, you have to measure it, and there are more and more sensing systems, you know, coming onto the market to measure outdoor airflow rates, not based on carbon dioxide, but based on, you know, some sort of a pedo principle or some sort of a, a pressure drop device in the dampers or somewhere else or some kind of a hot wire system and you know that's you know those can be used and they can give good numbers as long as they're installed properly um, and that's really a design decision about whether you need it but if you want to know you got to measure it um, you know tracer gases are, are largely a research tool I don't you know, I couldn't see that um, being used kind of routinely in, in, a, in a building, you know, kind of continuously monitor air change rates, except in a research study. And again, because that's a whole other level of complexity and sophistication costs, it's probably hard to justify, you know, maybe on a periodic basis in some types of facilities, but probably not most commercial buildings. Let's um, make sure our listeners know that you know we we talked in advance to uh, Doctor Persley about maybe sticking over for an extra five or ten minutes. So I know we're we're getting toward roundup time, Cliff. Did you have anything you wanted to add? And I I will get these other text questions in during the roundup there. So hang in there with us, uh, folks on the line, or 
if you can uh, download the show later, we're going to go a little over today. Cliff? Yeah, actually, I, I just had a couple, uh, and what I'll do is I'll, if I ask, uh, if I do them both now, uh, I, I don't need to ask one during the roundup. I, I guess in looking through some of the research papers that you've done, there were two that, that, that caught my attention. Um, I'd like to know what is a gas phase air cleaner and whether or not this type of device would be beneficial to indoor air quality. Sure. You know, a gas phase air cleaner is is a device to remove gaseous contaminants from the air. I think folks are more familiar with particle filtration which are, you know, media filters or electrostatic air cleaners that take out particles. And these gas phase air cleaners take out gaseous contaminants. And, uh, you know, that, so that's the, the distinction. There's a number of technologies, you know, people probably familiar with activated charcoal. There's other sorbent materials. There's, you know, kind of out there uh, closer to the cutting edge. There's some photocatalytic approaches and... You know, if you want to take out gaseous contaminants, you know, you need some technology that, that you know, one of these technologies to to, uh, to do so. And they're used in some applications. Uh, for, you know, I've heard of them in museums where they've got to control, you know, certain contaminants to protect the artifacts or in some industrial facilities where they're, you know, trying to keep corrosive outdoor pollutants from... Um, you know, attacking electronics that are controlling these industrial processes. So, so they're they're out there, and you know they're you know more expensive, you know, than some people may feel they can justify. You know, one key issue though is that for particle filters, you know, we have standards and ratings, these you know MERV ratings, and I, you know, to most of you folks know about where you can say I need a MERV 10 filter, and you know. You know, pretty reliably that it's, you know, been tested and you know its performance. We're not quite there with gaseous air cleaners yet. We don't have the rating methods quite in place. Ashray is working on some and and have made some advances there, but it's that makes it tougher to design these systems and specify them um, until those rating standards are, you know, developed and approved and on the street. Okay. I guess my second question, uh, again, there was another paper uh, that, that you wrote, and I, I'd like you to tell our listeners how do stoves and toasters affect indoor air quality? Oh, okay. Yeah, the, um, we've recently done some work uh, looking at particles generated, um, very small particles, you know, generated by normal household activities. Um, people have been measuring indoor particle concentrations for years, and as well as outdoor, and outdoor levels are regulated, as you know. But, um, you know, people have found that the health effects seem to be more serious as you get to smaller and smaller particles. And there's a fellow retired from EPA, um, Lance Wallace, that I'm hopefully familiar to some of you who's done a lot of work in this area and we've worked with him um, where he was looking at very small particles in uh, in residential settings you know generated from cooking and candle burning and you know vacuum cleaner operation pretty mundane 
activities, and I'm seeing a lot of particles generated. And then as the time has moved on, the measurement technology is advanced where we can measure smaller and smaller particles. And now we're getting into the, you know, the nano range of just a couple um, nanometers diameter in some of these particles. So we, you know, we did some work with lands to measure, you know, the nanoscale particles released by cooking and, and so on. There were an awful lot of them. And in terms of number and in terms of surface area, they really dominate the big particles. Now, how that relates to health effects is a whole other issue that, you know, needs to get sorted through by the medical folks. But, uh, you know, just cooking, toasters, and, and so on generated, you know, quite a bit of, uh, um, of these small particles. And, you know, it's a pretty interesting finding. Some folks wanted to call this the killer stove study, but we weren't quite... Uh, you know, comfortable with that because we, you know, this is not a new source of pollutants. We've been cooking in homes for centuries and and longer. But there's, uh, you know, there's some interesting work to be done, you know, regarding the particle generation by by cooking and other residential, you know, residential activities. W- was there one type of stove that was worse than the other? Was gas uh, or electric? You know, we only looked at one of each, so okay. I think it'd be, you know, you wouldn't really say on a general basis that one's worse than the other, but they probably, you know, we did some tests without cooking anything, just running the stove. Mm-hmm. And so the nature of the particles is likely to be different. You know, we think for just gas combustion, you're seeing set precursors and other types of particles, and the electric stove, you know, from the, from the elements. The particles generated there, we're not entirely sure what they are. We're mm-hmm. trying to develop methods to collect those particles and then analyze them to determine what they're made of and, um, um, you know, kind of where they, where they come from, um, you know, because, you know, we don't really know, you know, are all particles, are the smaller particles a health issue because of their size or because of their shape or their composition? And we Nobody really knows that yet, and we need to uh, dig into this uh, a fair bit deeper, and we hope to be doing that soon. Fascinating stuff. Back to you, Joe. Okay. Um, I guess we're in roundup time here, Cliff. I don't know. Herb, Herb, I'm at Herb Lehman's office here, and I don't think he's used the NIST clock. His, his clock's saying 101. My watch is saying 106. So uh, Maybe we better round up. I've got two quick questions. If we can keep you on for another couple minutes here, Doctor Personally. Sure, no problem. Great, I appreciate that. I guess the the one is um, not even so much a question as a um, a request from a listener for you to maybe pitch um, what what is referred to as contam. Can you tell us tell our listeners what that is and maybe give them some information? Oh, sure, sure. That's. Yeah, I should, I, uh, should do that every chance I get. Um, Compan is a public domain, meaning free, um, software tool to calculate airflows and contaminant levels in buildings. And um, um, I could give you the website now, but it's probably something you, you, you can follow up uh, probably better with some of these various documents. But basically, it's a program where you enter some information about a building, and then you can calculate ventilation rates, you can put in contaminant sources, and calculate concentration profiles. Now, you know, there's definitely a learning curve, like 
all software, even word processing programs, right? But, you know, once you kind of get comfortable with it, it's pretty powerful, and you can account for all sorts of sources and filtration mechanisms and mechanical ventilation and uh, and so on. So uh, if folks are interested in, you know, having this tool, you know, to do some of these calculations, I'll get you the website, and, and uh, I'll assume you guys can post it somewhere, and and, uh, you know, I wish everybody, you know, you know, good luck and good calculations using it. <laughs> well, we can do that. We'll, we'll put that on our, uh, we'll put it on the homepage for um, this week, and then I'll move it over to the resources page after uh, the next show we do in two weeks. Before we go, um, I got a quick, quick question, and if you want anything you'd like to add before we go, that would be great. But I just, I'm curious, what do you think? I'm looking at all these different uh indoor air quality issues and you know obviously mold got a lot of attention early in the you know 2000 era here what's what in your mind what's the the thing that we should really be looking at as maybe the next big thing on the horizon with respect to indoor air quality issues you know that's a really you know good question i've never claimed or proven myself to be a very good prognosticator um you know, I think, you know, the next big issue is, I'm, I'm going to um, say that it, and it's really the current issue, is, is kind of reconciling the, the push towards energy efficiency or even net zero buildings and, and you know, maintaining or even improving indoor air quality. I think a lot of people see energy efficiency and indoor air quality as, as in opposition, but there's a whole lot of ways you can get both. Um, without, you know, spending an arm and a leg. And I think that maybe it's not a research issue, but, a, but an application issue is how can we, you know, move forward, reduce energy consumption in buildings, at the same time, you know, improving the indoor environment. And I think there's lots of opportunities to do that. And it's just going to take, you know, some dedicated folks, um, you know, to commit and, and uh, move forward. All right. Before we go, um, first I want to thank Dr. Weil for joining us today. We're we're running low on time. I knew this was going to happen when we had when we had you scheduled, so we planned a little in advance. Um, we'll bring Dr. Weil back in in two weeks here when we come back. But before we go, is there anything that you know we missed that kind of sticks out that you'd like to add? I can't think of anything. This is, you know, you have some good questions. I hopefully I had some fair answers, and you know, there, there's lots more to talk about, as, as as you know. Well, you did a wonderful job. We really appreciate having you on. I, I encourage the listeners to grab a copy of the Indoor Air Quality Guide. There's, a, I've got a list of about ten more things that I wanted to touch on that we obviously didn't have time to do, and I think uh, one of the things I'd like to talk to you again about in the future is these. Uh, advanced ventilation approaches that you discuss in the back of this book uh, in the last chapter anyway and uh we'll be happy to do that we really appreciate you joining us this week on iaq radio dr andrew persley from the national institute for standards and technology this is uh radio joe you saying thanks to all of our listeners i want to thank the z-man cliff slotnick environmental Andy kowalicki back at the station there for handling the controls of course our technical director dr dietrich wow most importantly our growing group of loyal listeners guest five thanks for those great questions 
Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. We're going to take next week off for the holiday, and we'll see everybody back here in two weeks for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 